So who likes stories? We're kind of built, I think, to learn from stories. Um, I think a story is the catalyst by which we learn the best. You can throw a bunch of facts at people or you can tell them a story where they figure it out on their own. My favorite example is when Nathan the prophet has to go confront David in his sin. So David has committed adultery, he's murdered, and he's lied about it. And he's the king, and Nathan is not. How would you like that job? Not fun. So what does Nathan do? Tells him a story. Goes in, hey, David, let me tell you a story. There was this rich land baron who had thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep as rich as he could be. And he had this very poor neighbor and they had one little lamb. But it was the family lamb and they loved that lamb. It was inside the house, it was a pet to them. But that rich land baron one day had a friend come from out of town and visit him and he wanted to throw a feast for this friend. So he goes over and steals the poor family's little lamb and makes a feast of it and they eat it. And David jumps off his throne and says, that man must die. And what does Nathan say? You're the man. (laughs) Woohoo! And David knew it right away. Oh, that story is about me. Right? Stories are so powerful. Ruth is a brilliant story. No one knows who wrote it. Like there's no author. There's no like, it just kind of appears, right? We know ultimately it's God's spirit, but who is the human author? It's unknown, right? And in the Bible, women are very often unnamed. Who can name Noah's wife? You can't, right? There's other extra biblical sources that kind of say maybe she was this name. Uh, Who knows Lot's wife's name? Salt shaker? I mean, I don't know. Because they're very often unnamed. But in Ruth, the ladies take center stage. So there's been a very long kind of thought that maybe the book was authored by a lady. It's very possible. Um, Or it was a very aware man because of the way that he gets women, right? (laughs) So for a while, I thought Elijah, my son, was going to be one of those very aware men. Because from the time he was zero to six, he was constantly surrounded by older ladies, my wife and my three daughters. So he was always around four ladies. And remember this one time he was six years old. One of my older daughters had a friend coming over that was bringing another six-year-old sister. So a six-year-old girl was coming over to my house. And Elijah said this, he goes, hmm, I think I'll make her a fruit salad. I'm like, what six-year-old boy says that? (laughs) I'm like, a very aware six-year-old. I think I'll make her a fruit salad. Okay, dude. (laughs) So I don't know who wrote it. Maybe it was a a lady, maybe, or maybe just a really aware dude. But it has great theology. Like, it's thick. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering, there's this just, it'll put you into theological pretzels. If you let it, if you let the story tell itself and listen to the way God had it authored, it'll put you in a pretzel. 
But his real, real story is redemption. That's what it's doing. And it's telling this thing that you can partner with God in the big story of redemption. And in the midst of this book, you see the saving of a Gentile wife. Now that should, if you are any kind of a biblical person, you should be like, huh, that sounds like something right there. There's missed opportunities in this book. And yet, even with the missed opportunities, you see it works out exactly the way it's supposed to. In the end, there's all these incredible theological ideas behind it. And my outline for the book is real simple. Chapter one, life stinks. We'll see that tonight. Chapters two, three, and four, but God. And if you read the book, it actually takes five verses for the trouble. That's it. It's the following 79 verses that begin to pull the story back out of trouble into redemption. Because redemption is always harder than trouble, isn't it? Read the Bible. One chapter gets us in trouble, Genesis chapter three. A thousand, well, it's much more than that. Almost 1,200 chapters is God working to redeem and bring humanity back out of that trouble into another place, Eden-like, Revelation 21 and 22. Trouble's always easy. Redemption is hard, long, and difficult. So Ruth, let's go. Verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, God is my Lord. And the name of his wife, Naomi or Pleasant. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Five verses, we get the trouble. So verse one places this in the context of the time of the judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, probably one of the darkest times in scripture. Just think, Daytona Beach, spring break, drugs, alcohol, and the rest. That's the book of Judges. Dark, sinful, terrible period of time. So this family flees from that and they go out of Israel and they launch into Moab, which is only about 40 or 50 miles away. Was it the right or wrong thing for them to do? Was it a sin for them to leave Israel and go live in Moab? If you read commentaries, most of them say it was a sin. I ask if your kids were starving to death 
because there's a famine, what would you do? If a famine hits the promised land of Grant's Pass and there's work in North Dakota, Moab of North Dakota, would you move there? I certainly would. Man, 100%. There is no text in scripture that forbids Israelites from moving to Moab. You can make conjecture, you can say things, but no. Now we can discuss whether it was a wise move or an unwise move, but it was never sin for them to move. It's always easy to blame things on sin. That's really easy to do, but I don't think it's always the right thing. What's the entire book of Job about? That middle section is all about his three friends and the fourth one joins, joins them. And what are they constantly saying? Bro, you sin, confess it. You're suffering because of some sin. And we do the same thing. Commentaries do the same thing. Well, they blew it. They sinned. They shouldn't have gone there. Sin, sin, sin. That's too easy. Be so careful. Because we can tend to do that when we see somebody suffer. Well, they must have sinned. And we look like graceless jerks, which we are. Be very careful. Some suffering is from sin, but there's a lot of suffering that's not because of sin. And if you read the whole Bible, here's what you find. Often, Israel was worse than the Moabites. Read what Ezekiel says about Israel, right? Yahweh says over and over, you're worse than all the pagan nations. You did things that would make pagan nations blush, right? Israel did. Elisha, during one of those periods where it was super sinful, he tells a widow, get out of Israel. Go away because it's gonna get really bad here for a while. So I don't think it was a sin. Don't flatten the complexity of scripture. Allow it to be complex. Allow it to be mysterious. Allow it to cause you to ask questions. That's what it's trying to do. So, okay, he moves. Has these two boys, Malon and Chilean, their names literally mean sick and dying. <laughs> I don't know who would say that, you know? You know, when your kids are born, sometimes they look a little bit like, hmm, oh my goodness. Usually they get better, not always, but to say uh, you look sick, so your name is sick, and I don't know, it's just interesting. So he has these two boys, sick and dying, and then they find these wives. One was named Oprah. She was a billionaire with her own TV station. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It sounds so close, but it's not. And Ruth, now here is a little bit of a dilemma. Should they have married Moabite women? Once again, there's no prohibition in scripture against marrying Moabite women. But there is this funny little text. It's in Deuteronomy 23, verse three. It says, if you marry a Moabite woman, your kids cannot come into the temple until the 10th generation, which is like 400 years. So listen, you can marry her if you want to, but for 400 years, you can't come to church. So I think there might be a little bit of like, hmm, be careful, right? Be careful about who you marry. And it's not race, it's religion. Because the Bible says this, they'll pull your heart away from me to worship other gods. That was the problem. And so the the warning there is, look out, not a prohibition, but probably not wise, because they'll pull your heart away from worshiping God. Today, 
Can believers marry unbelievers? If you're a Bible-believing Christian, can you marry an unbeliever? 1 Corinthians 7, read the whole thing, especially verse 39. No. Unbelievers and believers are not supposed to be married. It happens all the time. I talk to young ladies and they'll come and they'll try to talk to me about their boyfriend and they'll say, oh, you know, I got this boyfriend, but he doesn't believe. And I just wish he would believe. I give them one answer now. I wish you'd break up with them until they do. And that might seem harsh, but that's what I think. And I have sat the, the worst premarital counseling session I've ever had in my life was probably 11 years ago. And I was talking to this fiance. Her husband was in the Iraq war at the time. Um, he's in that kind of, during a really difficult time over there. Um, they were engaged. I'm like, are you guys believers? Yes, we're believers. Okay, great, great. I had set up a, a meeting. He flew back from Iraq to get married to her. I meet with them. I sit them down. I'm talking with them. I said, so bro, tell me about your faith. Oh, well, I don't believe. I said, you don't believe what? I don't believe all this stuff. So I just said, for, for clarity, what are you saying you don't believe in? I believe in Jesus. So I just explained, so this is what believers believe in. I just gave him the simple gospel. We believe that because of the fall, every person has entered into sin. And the way that we get out of sin, the way we get rescued from our own sinfulness is through the work of Jesus Christ, through believing on him, receiving his work on the cross for redemption and reconciliation to the Father. He is the bridge back to God. And by believing on him, we receive that bridge. We come back into his family. Are you saying you don't believe in that? That's right. I said, okay, I can't do your wedding. If looks could kill... I would no longer be alive, right? He's like, I just left the war zone, man. I come here, you're the terrorist. <laughs> but I won't do it. I'll marry an unbeliever to an unbeliever. I've done those weddings. I tell them that, no problem. But listen to me, I'll tell you this. You're gonna meet with me five times and I'm gonna constantly share with you the gospel. And then when I do your wedding, I'm gonna share the gospel in your wedding. So to me, it's just an opportunity. Hey, perfect. Bunch of unbelievers there, I'm gonna tell them the gospel, 100%. I'll do believer to a believer, no problem, awesome. But I won't do an unbeliever with an unbeliever because the Bible forbids it. It's that simple to me. So dads, parents, especially dads, guard your kids. You have to guard against this. And I think the unwise thing that Elimelech did was he put his boys in a place where the only girls they're going to meet are Moabites. Dads, put your boys, put your girls in places where they can meet believers. Get them around believers. Get them to church. Get them to youth group. Get them with friends. Get them into a community group. Get them around other kids that believe so that they can meet believing spouses. To me, it's simple. Dads, you love, you serve, and worship Jesus. You find wives that love and serve and worship Jesus. You give an example to your kids about how to love and serve and worship Jesus. And then they find spouses that do the same thing. I know that's hard, but I think that's the way it's supposed to be. 
And dads, I think, are most important in this. I have this study, it's out of Sweden. And what they found was fascinating to me. They found if both parents were unbelievers, there was like an 8% chance in Sweden of one of their kids getting saved and becoming part of the faith. But if just the mom believed and the dad didn't believe and the dad didn't participate in anything of faith, that number actually dropped and became under 5% of kids stuck with the faith. But if the dad loved Jesus and took his kids to church and participated and the wife did not believe, there was a 44% chance those kids would continue in the faith. How huge is that? The weight, the weight of raising kids biblically is on dads. God's not gonna ask me, hey, how did I raise your kids? And I've had parents sit there and get mad at me. Dad saying, oh, man, I did everything right. I brought them to church. Bro, I had them for a half an hour, 45 minutes a week. Are you kidding me? I did everything. Okay, I'm not gonna stand before God and answer for your kids. He entrusted them to you. Guard your kids. Get them around people that are on fire for Jesus. To me, that's the one unwise thing that happens right here. And so husband dies, both boys die, and she's left by herself. Three women left all alone 3,000 plus years ago. How hopeless is that? I was trying to figure out how do you put this in the same context? This would be, you're 67 years old, you haven't saved up any money for retirement. You go bankrupt. You lose your house. You lose everything. You have to drive a school bus during the winters and you collect cans during the summer and you live in a trailer right next to a hemp farm. That's as close as I can get. And that's, it would be worse for them. Okay? So that's the situation. Bad. And you know Nehemiah's, or Nehemiah, Naomi's saying right now, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? Why is this happening? Verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each one of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you there refrain from marrying? No, 
my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She gets good news. God's visited the land after 10 years. The famines ended. So her, her hometown is Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. The house of bread that for 10 years had, had no bread, God revisits and now that house of bread has bread. She still has her family farm. So she looks at her two daughters-in-law and says, I'm going back. And they say, well, we're gonna go with you. And she says, no, no, don't go. I have nothing. I have no future. You know the two stages of depression? Stage one, nothing good has happened to me. Stage two, nothing good will ever happen to me. She's, that's where she's at. I, I have no hope. There's nothing for me. There's nothing for you. And so these three women, verse 14, exactly what you'd expect, these three women just start crying which is what exactly I would do too. This is bleak. This is hopeless. This is brutal. (sighs) Verse 13 is a sad verse to me. She's talking to these two Moabitess women and she says, it's sad for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Does Naomi represent God well to these Moabite women? In tough times, be very careful how you represent God to unbelievers. Men have great conversations with believers, people that can bounce things off, but to unbelievers, be very careful, right? Because it goes on, and I think it even gets worse. Verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Verse 15, Orpah, her daughter-in-law, goes back to her gods. Not the best evangelism is that. Because the God that the Moabites worshiped was the God Chemosh. And we don't know a lot about the God Chemosh, but we have one very interesting text in scripture. It's 2 Kings chapter two, verse 27. And it's Israel's at war with Moab and they lay siege to this city and the city is going down. And then all of a sudden, the king of that city brings out his firstborn, and sacrifices him on the wall to the god Chemosh. And the most bizarre thing 
one of the most bizarre things in scripture. It says, wrath came out against the Israelites and they turned and fled. Now, what is that? I'm not exactly sure. At some point, we'll do a Thursday theology on those kind of texts and explore them. Something radical happens after this human sacrifice that actually scares the Israelites so much that they just take off running. Some wrath comes out. But obviously, part of the worship of Chemosh was human sacrifice. So Naomi is okay sending her, she's lived in this city for 10 years, she knows what it is. She's okay sending her daughter-in-law back into that kind of worship. I'll say it again, during tough times, be so careful how you represent God to unbelievers. Like this is not Naomi's finest hour. It is, however, Ruth's finest hour. Like stark contrast, you've got a person that knows Yahweh, raised in that, and then you've got this pagan woman who is just brilliant and beautiful. Have you ever seen that before? I have. And she makes a statement that is as nice as you could possibly imagine. I'm leaving everything for you, Naomi. I'm leaving my house. I'm leaving my family. I'm leaving my culture. I'm leaving my language. I'm leaving everything I know about, and I'm going to follow you and your God as well. Like that is brilliant and awesome. Why would she do that? The text doesn't tell us. I think her husband, one of Naomi's sons, was a really good husband and demonstrated to her something, said this incredible covenant word in the Bible, demonstrated dowed to her in such a way that she'd never seen before. And it captured her. These, this family's different. This family's different. And then she demonstrates to Naomi an off-the-chart kind of kindness that captures hearts today. Don't we love that kind of kindness? I was reading just on, I think it was on Friday, and I wrote it down because it was so good. Uh, this school in Dayton, Maine, kindergarten school. And they had heard that they were getting a new student. And this new student was deaf. It was the first deaf student ever in the kindergarten class. And so this whole class said, we want to learn sign language so that when she gets here, we can welcome her. So they did that. And this girl, do you see pictures? She is beaming. You just go, oh my goodness, that's so awesome. Or that viral video right now of the policeman who's talking to that homeless person. He doesn't have any shoes on. And he must've said, what size do you wear? 10 medium, me too. That policeman takes off his shoes and gives them to this homeless guy. Doesn't know he's on, you just go, oh my goodness, that's so amazing. Now, why do we do that? If we were truly the products of survival the fittest, why would anybody do those things? It makes no sense. I was just reading a book about that, that whole idea and they have this, this guy, he's a doctor and he just studies chimps. And his whole, he, is the, he is the preeminent person on chimps. And he was asked like, what's the difference between us? And he said this, you will never see two chimps carrying a log together. They don't do that. They work for their own ends, that's it. They're not gonna help somebody else carry, they don't do that. You will never see two chimps carrying a log together. Why are we so different? Because we're image bearers of God. And just like God shows kindness to us, 
when we see the same kind of kindness demonstrated in this world, man, it resonates with us and we say, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So verse 18, she just heads out. How do you stop bad times? Here's what happens to Naomi, and I think it's really a good way to think about it. She hears about good news and then moves towards it. You want to stop bad things in your life? Hear the good news and start moving towards that good news. Get away from the bad. This place is bad. This place has not been good. That place over there is good. I'm leaving, and I'm going to make steps and movements toward the good stuff. If you have a job that's bad and evil, find a different job. If you're in a relationship that's bad and evil, stop that relationship, move towards a good relationship. If you're in a business deal that you know, this is not right, stop that bad business and move towards good news, some kind of good relationship. If you have a spouse that's continually committing adultery on you, it's time to just say, okay, man, that is a biblical grounds for saying, I'm getting away from this, this is bad, I'm getting away from it. And you move towards the good news. That's what Naomi does. And that is the beginning of how she partners in redemption. She hears the good news. There's bread now there in Bethlehem. I'm gonna move towards that. I'm gonna move towards it. And here's what happens, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For almighty Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Mm. So she gets back to this city. And verse 19 says, the whole city was stirred because of them. They must have been some big players. Right? I was gone from Grant's Pass for about two and a half years. It was like from 1998 till 2000. And um, I got back from Vanuatu, landed in a plane. My fiance, now my wife, picked me up, brought me back to Grants Pass. It was not stirred for my return. <laughs> there was no stirring happening. <laughs> Nobody cared, right? The, the whole thing, they, they must have been big players, Elimelech and Naomi. And so the ladies are all looking and saying, is this Naomi? And like, no, no, it looks too old. <laughs> no, no, it's really Naomi. She just put on a little weight. You know they said that. You know they said that. Come on. <laughs> it is her. It's her. And it's sad because of how broken Naomi is. She had dreams of her and Elimelech becoming grandparents, holding grandbabies, having friends around them, having a community, enjoying life in the, the fall, right? In the fall of that season of life. Just, she had dreams of that. And now everywhere that she would go, 
People that knew her would say, hey, where's Elimelech? And she'd have to relive, he died. Oh, where's your two boys? They're taking care of you, right? (sighs) They're dead too. Like how many times did she have to go through that conversation in this town? Over and over and over again. She is the female Job of the Old Testament. You know the story of Job. Everything is taken away from him except for his wife, who he probably would have liked if she was taken as well, right? It's the same story. (sighs) As a body, be extra sensitive to people that have gone through deep loss. Be really sensitive in what you say. Sometimes the best thing you can do is say nothing and just give them a hug. Because, yeah, amen, someone says. Because so often we just say things that we don't mean them, but they dredge up in somebody all the emotions and they're just reliving that hurtful thing again and again and again. Sometimes just a big hug and just, hey, I love you. Anytime you want to get together, let's get together. Sometimes that's the best thing you can do. So I can just imagine this situation for her. So she says, verse 20, I'm going to the DMV and I'm changing my name. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear unpleasant. I want bitter. That's what I want. I mean, imagine every place she goes, there was the playground my boys used to play on. There's Chilean's best friend's house. There's where me and Elimelech went on our first date. Just think about it. Hard, hard thing. So she says, verse 21, and I can understand why she would say it. I went away full. And Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Yeesh. Was she really empty when she returned? No. Who was standing right next to her? Ruth, sometimes difficulty makes us miss the Ruths that God has put right next to us. Yeah, don't let that do that to you. Like God's answer was standing right next to Naomi and she was missing it right now. The hope, everything that's gonna be the part of her redemption, God had already put in place for her. And she, she was blinded to it. She was missing it. When you're in difficulty, a great prayer is, God, open my eyes to see the Ruths. Open my eyes to see the people that you've already put around me, the situations you've already orchestrated that are for my redemption and for my joy. I don't want to be blind to that. She missed the answer. The big question, though, in chapter one is this, was Naomi right? (laughs) How do you work this thing? Give it to your daughter, she'll figure it out. (laughs) The big question, was she right? She says this, the almighty has brought calamity 
upon me. Did God kill Naomi's husband and two sons? Right? This is the Bible. It's what the Bible says. Is she right? The Bible's saying it. So obviously must be right. Be very careful with narratives in the Bible. A narrative in scripture is retelling the history of the events that took place. People talking, having conversations, and people can in narratives have conversations where they say things that are not right. Okay, so be very careful. Just read the book of Job, read Job 42, seven, where God singles out Eliphaz and the three friends and he says this, I'm mad at you because you have not spoken correctly about me. So what you then have to do is go back through the entire book of Job and be like, what they said is not right. What they said is not right, right? Just because it's recorded, it's a conversation that God had Job record. What they said was not right. So you have to look at narratives and say, is this right? Is this right? God was mad that he was misrepresented, actually. I'm mad, you misrepresent me, you guys. Do we do the same thing, kind of, right? We sometimes can, can like divide the world up incorrectly, I think. So an earthquake comes and it takes out a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic. What do we think? God did it, man. An earthquake comes and, and takes out a really nice church. What do we think? Oh, no, Satan did it. We do the same things. Like even like with, with children and, and deformities and stuff like that, like we, we make these funny distinctions between one kind of deformity and another. Like does God make mistakes or does he not? If a kid's born with a deformity, was that God making a mistake with that child? All right, there's some amazing things we're doing right now with spina bifida and like this new way that kids can be operated in the womb, right? And that can be repaired. But normally if they were born, they'd probably die but I mean, that's incredible. Was that a mistake? Would God make a mistake with that? Hole in a kid's heart, right? It's these really, you can, you can wrap yourself into some pretzels with that stuff. So what are the answers? Is she right? Does God do this stuff? Does he make babies born with spina bifida? Does he make babies born with holes in their hearts? Some people say, number one, Yes. Naomi is right about what she says God does because God is sovereign. So that theological system is built on God's sovereignty, which I believe in God's sovereignty, but here's how they define God's sovereignty. He controls and causes everything. God is sovereign. And they have a saying, the dust dances to the decree of God, which means this. So right now, if you could just take one cubic foot of air in this inside, there's 200,000 particles of dust in that one foot by one foot by one foot chunk of air. And if it's inside, the majority of those particles, 75% of those particles, they're made up of dead skin cells. So breathe deep. We're all cannibals. 
Yes. It's nice when we have these doors open. And what they're saying is this, the trajectory of all 200,000 of those in every single space across the entire world, God orchestrates the very path that that particle is taking. The dust dances to the decree of God. So Gordon Clark, one of their leading theologians, in a back and forth conversation on what this means, he said, let me be frank with you. When a man gets drunk and goes home and kills his family, it was the will of God, end quote. That's that system. And there are people that I love and people that I read and people that I listen to that say that's the system God is sovereign. And she's right. God did control and cause the death of her husband and two sons. That's number one. Number two is this. Um, no, because God is love. And the stress on there is God's love. It's Exodus 34, six and seven. Long suffering, meek, you know, it's that. And so what happens in that system though is God becomes very weak, very weak. And I think there's a third system and it's where I land and it's this, it's the warfare model of scripture that there's a real battle and there will be casualties in this battle. I think if you read from Genesis three all the way to Revelation 20 and all the warfare metaphors in Ephesians chapter six, in second Corinthians chapter 10, over and over, Timothy is told, be a good soldier, fight the good fight. Why, is, why are those terms used? Because it's a war. And in this war, there are battles and God is good and the world is broken but he has invaded earth on the cross and he is working now to redeem all things. That's what God is doing. This world, us, and he can even use evil for his ends. Genesis 50 verse 20. What you meant for evil, Ra, God can turn to good, to tov. Ra and tov are two of these words that go back and forth in the Hebrew Bible. These two opposites. God can take the worst raw in the world and he can change it into tov, something good. He has that power. And so God says, constantly come, invites us in. Come with me in this rescue mission of planet earth. Get on my side. We're gonna rescue and we're gonna redeem and we're gonna choose to understand the world correctly. That's where I land. She's not right. God didn't do that. It's this thing in this broken world that we live in, casualties happen, but we trust God is great enough and strong enough and powerful enough that he will rescue and use it all for his purpose and for his glory. That's the way I see scripture. So then it ends by saying, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's the hope right there. Is it a coincidence that all these things stack up and they get back to Bethlehem when, when the economy's buzzing and right when the barley harvest is kicking off? Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous, Right? 
So I was talking with a good friend. Actually, I talked with the couple just a few minutes ago. I was talking with Dan Vilek about the adoption of a couple kids that we were involved with. And we were talking about all just the stuff that went into that. So Dan hurts himself in the Pan Am Games, throws out his shoulder, was headed to the Olympics, can't do the Olympics, comes back here, wonders what to do. And then he goes to Hawaii, want to go to Hawaii for this wrestling camp thing. While he's in Hawaii, he meets this guy named Kit. And Kit has a couple kids, um, Mikey and Maisha. Mikey wants to be a wrestler. They kind of hit it off. Kit and Dan hit off super well. Mikey ends up kind of being a little bit tutored by Dan. Mikey comes and actually wrestles at SOU, wrestles at some camps that Dan puts on, meets his future spouse who is related to Dan. Um, all that happens, uh, Maisha, the, the sister, goes to school. She becomes a eye doctor, pledges she'll never move to Oregon. And then Dan invites her and her husband, Matt, to come here and become part of the practice here. And they go, okay, we'll do that. Um, Matt, the husband, has some history in foster care, reaches out to that, loves the skate ministry, loves that kind of ministry. Um, One Sunday, I'm walking in from the back and forth when I was driving back and forth. I'm walking in and I see a couple I haven't met. I'm like, hey, how are you guys doing? It's Matt and Maisha Langella. So we kind of talk a little bit, we hit it off. Um, They end up volunteering in the kids' wing. We at the same time get two boys, um, Terrain and Arrow Strike. Um, We got into foster care because my brother went crazy and he lost his kids and we brought their kids in. Um, They head to a grandparent, we get two new ones, great kids. We just love Terrain and Arrow. And so uh, they end up volunteering in the kids' wing. They get to know Terrain and Arrow. They find out, hey, there's a possibility to adopt them. Um, Long story short, was it last November that it went through? December? Christmas. So in Christmas, um, they adopted Terrain and Arrow Strike. And now they're Terrain and Arrow Langella. Yeah, so just, it's awesome. But you just think about, what are the odds of that? What are the odds of all that? Oh, it's out of this world. It's God wanted these two boys, Terrain and Arrow, who, man, had seen some really hard things and been through some very difficult events in their life to be sucked out of that and put into a family that loves Jesus and loves them. Brilliant. There's no coincidences. God's able to take even bad things and work them for good. That's this book. You can have hope. I don't care what your situation is. Naomi, desperate, hopeless situation. At the end of this, the barley harvest is coming. You always gotta remember that. Harvest is coming. It might feel like right now you're plowing and you're weeding and it's dirty and it's gritty and it's hot and you're like, God, what is happening? Harvest is coming. Never forget the God of the harvest. Harvest is coming and you can have hope. Amen? So Jesus, we are so grateful that you are great enough to take the broken, tattered things of this world and weave them into a tapestry Ephesians chapter two, that's brilliant and beautiful. Your poema, 
I pray for any in here that have grown hopeless, that maybe feel like Naomi, that are growing bitter. I pray that they would know there's a better way. You are good. The world is broken. But you have executed a rescue mission on the cross to redeem us and to save us and to change the trajectory of eternity. And it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Harvest is coming for them. I pray that we could learn from Ruth this Moabite woman who puts her faith in you and sees her life transformed. May we learn from her. May we go from here today carrying great hope because you are a great God. And we ask this in your name, amen.